Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give to RUF.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Uh, a handful of us in this room will fail in our job at some point, right? And uh, when you fail in your job, uh, you get laid off, whatever it is, it won't fracture your fundamental relationships in a way that deeply affects you for the rest of your life and the community around you and generations after you for the rest of your life, right? You're staying for students. There'll be a couple of months, maybe, where you don't collect a paycheck and you'll get another job. You'll be fine. However, statistically, half of us in this room, our marriages will fail. So right now, you're spending four plus years preparing for a job in a field that you may not even enter, right? You might be doing chemical engineering and ended up at Goldman. Uh, and tonight, we're going to spend a little over 30 minutes talking about marriage. Uh, we don't talk about marriage enough. Because actually, if your career does fall apart, but you have rich, deep companionship, uh, you'll make it. You'll be okay in life. You'll figure it out. Um, but it is not true that if your career is exploding, if you are taking off, and yet your home life and your deepest friendship and companionship is in disarray, it doesn't work back in the other direction. It doesn't make everything okay. If you are strong in your marriage, you will be strong out in the world regardless of what happens. But it's not true the other way around, that if you are strong out in the world in your job and friendships, whatever it is, that that translates back into your home life. So we don't talk about marriage enough is actually the reason that we're talking about it. Um, it we should be talking about it more nights than just one. Secondly, um, our feelings about marriage are very ambivalent. And this is what I mean by this. We ha- we're all of two minds on the issue of marriage. We don't want to get married yet, and we don't want to end up alone. Right? Two opposite feelings. I don't, I'm not ready to get married, but I don't want to end up alone. And actually, fear governs both sides of that. We're afraid of commitment, right? It's too early. What if they're not the one? What if you find someone more attractive later? What if you find someone with whom you have more chemistry? What if you discover hidden secrets of theirs? What if they change? We're afraid we won't be happy if we get married. But we're afraid of being alone. What if I never find the one? Will I be alone forever? Will anyone ever think I'm special enough to notice or to marry? I'm afraid I'll always be alone. We're afraid we can't be happy if we're always single. And so the way we view all our romantic relationships are like this. We're like, I need somebody, I need somebody, I need somebody, but no, 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 Right? We're afraid of being alone. We're afraid of being married. And to deal with these fears, we need to see how God designed marriage to function. But thirdly, and this is actually the most important reason we're going to talk about marriage, is because I want to ask the question, what if marriage wasn't what you thought it was for? What if we are fundamentally misusing marriage? We don't understand its, its purpose. Um, have you ever gotten, bought something because you thought it would do one thing for you only to end up being disappointed because it doesn't do what you thought it would do? It was actually built for a different function. Y'all have heard me use this illustration before. Some of you may have. But when our girls were little, uh, a little bit smaller, they had magic fairy wands all the time. And if you use magic fairy wands for what they were built and designed to do, which is conduct fairy magic, they're awesome at that. 
However, what fairy wands do terribly is operate as bludgeoning devices, and that's how we often used them. And what happened when we used them for something other than what they were designed is other people cried and the fairy wands broke. The, the tool itself broke, and it brought disarray and dysfunction into our relationships. Y'all tracking with me? Uh, CrossFit was a lot bad last week, but this illustration, y'all should get. Um, this is what my favorite writer, Chuck Closeman, said. I know no woman will ever satisfy me. I know that and would never try to deny it, but it's okay because I'll never satisfy a woman either. Here's the question, then I'm going to read the text and we're going to talk about it. What if you weren't looking for someone to satisfy your deepest longings? I think the reason that we are profoundly disappointed in marriage when we get there and afraid of it beforehand is because the main thing we're doing up till then is looking for someone to, separate, to, uh, sorry, to satisfy our deepest longings. And that's not what marriage is for. And that's why we're afraid of it. And that's why our marriages are going to be hard. Let me read from Ephesians 5 and then talk about it. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands. We're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. As to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever ate his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then he quotes the Genesis formula that I put up there earlier. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm telling you, it refers to Jesus and the church. However, let each one of you love him, his wife as himself, and let the wife see she respects her husband. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word on this, and I pray that we would be challenged by it, that your Holy Spirit would press truth deep into our hearts, and it would be truth not simply that we know, but that we experience. Give us faith. We need you to give us faith. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, So here's the irony regarding Christianity and the issues of marriage and sexuality. We're not going to talk about sex very much tonight, but I thought I'd bring this up. There's a tremendous irony on the Christian view of marriage and sexuality, and it's namely this. I think if you read scripture on sex and if you read scripture on marriage, this is what biblical Christianity would say to our culture about sex. And it's namely this. We don't like sex enough. I think that's the biblical criticism of our culture's view on sexuality. And conversely, I think if you read the Bible, and this is what I want to talk about tonight, on marriage, that actually the biblical criticism of the culture's view of marriage is that we think too highly of marriage. And I think a lot of times we think it's the opposite, that the Bible is profoundly anti-sex and pro-marriage relative to culture. But if you read the Bible, it's actually the exact opposite. The Bible is considerably has a higher, more powerful view and is more pro-sex than the culture, and it actually has a lower view of marriage than culture. This is what I mean. Um, we don't like sex enough 
And so we're actually having terrible sex because we don't like it enough. And this is what I mean. Uh, if someone, who, who would love music and enjoy it more? One of these two people. The individual who picks up 50 different instruments and plays it once or twice or for a couple of weeks or a couple of months over the course of his life and plays each instrument only a handful of times. Or the person who chooses one instrument and masters it for decades. Which one of those two people loves and enjoys music more? Because sex is just like that. Because each person is different emotionally, psychologically, physically. And the biblical view of sex is the way to enjoy it more richly and more deeply. It's to master that one instrument. But secondly, on the picture of marriage, on the issue of marriage. So all I have to say, I think the Bible has a higher view of sex. It actually loves it more than us. But secondly, and we're not going to talk about that tonight, we also have to deal with the fact that the opposite is true of marriage. We actually think too highly of it as a culture. And the reason divorce is so rampant is actually not because we're dismissive of marriage or we don't care about it. It's actually because we're so profoundly disappointed in our marriage because we're asking so much of it. We thought marriage could save us. And when it doesn't, the disappointment it was unbearable. The reason we're getting divorced so much is actually because we have too high a view of marriage and what it could have done for us. And no one can do for you what you want them to do for you in your marriage if you are asking them to save you and to make your life complete and make you whole. They cannot. Single people are anxious. You're afraid because you think if you don't get married, you will not have the seminal central human experience that will save you. And that's a lie. And dating people or dating serious people or when you're getting close to being engaged, you're afraid because you're afraid if I choose the wrong one, they will not make my life complete. They won't make your life complete. You've already asked too much of them. You've thought too highly of marriage. So what is marriage for? That's our first question. And we're going to draw from Genesis and Ephesians real quickly. Genesis 2.18, that first verse, I didn't read it, but I'll read it now. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. That phrase is really important. This is the first time God begins to speak about the idea of marriage. And that word helper, so he's speaking about Adam right here. That word helper is not a denigrating term. It's actually used to describe God several times in the Old Testament. And when it says a helper fit for him, the Hebrew word actually means a helper fit is a, someone of complementing strengths and weaknesses. Someone who's strong where Adam is strong, or sorry, strong where Adam is weak, and someone who's weak where Adam is strong. So it's to form a complementary bond, because God was really wise about relationships. He said, you know what would make intimacy cool? Is if two people were really, really different and they complemented each other. But secondly, I don't want to focus on that so much. Secondly, just the word helper. So not that second word fit or complementary, but the first word helper. Because that means it's a person for doing something with Adam. That Adam is engaged in a task and he needs someone to come alongside with him in that task, to co-labor with him. So he's beginning already to tell us the purpose of this marriage. And it's the task that God had originally given Adam in Genesis 1, to be fruitful and multiplied, to fill the earth and subdue it. God provides marriage as a social tool, providing Adam with a mate 
for the purpose of caring for God's creation and building cultures and communities. Another way of putting it is stewarding God's kingdom into this world. From the very beginning, the way the Bible views humanity is that we're made in God's image for the purpose of actually being His representatives in a world that He made for us to bring His dominion and His care into it. We're stewards. And marriage is this deep interpersonal relationship in which two complementary people with the strength of their bond go into that task together. They don't save each other. In Ephesians, though, we go further. Paul begins to give these commands about marriage. Husbands, love your brides as Jesus loved the church. Sanctify, cleanse, labor to make her beautiful to Jesus. For the wives, submit to your husbands, not to all men, just to your individual husbands, as the church adores and receives and respects Jesus. And he closes it by saying, this mystery is profound... But when I'm talking, I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. This is what it means, that he's giving us all this imagery of how marriages are supposed to work, how they're supposed, what their purpose is, is to mirror or to image or to be portraits of the gospel. That's the purpose of marriage. So that we can understand the gospel. The purpose of every marriage is that... Um, the purpose of... I can't even look in that. Uh, so bright. The purpose of every marriage relationship is through the relationship to actually preach the gospel of grace to one another and to illustrate the gospel before the world. Um, we're not going to spend time tonight on the roles in marriage. What do you think? It's gone. It's all right. Uh, Dramatic pause, we're about to talk about submission. <laughs> again? Everybody feeling a little angsty? Um, we're not going to talk much about the roles in marriage, the distinctive roles, but this is what you need to know. When Paul tells the husband, love... It's the type of love that's exercised for the purpose of the other person's flourishing. That is Jesus laying down his life for the church. And the type of submission that Paul is talking about is the type that honors the dignity of the other for the sake of building them up. Here's what submission is not. Submission, women, is not denying your strength. It is using your strength to help your husband become stronger. Is it sacrificial? Absolutely. So is the husband's call. Is it difficult? Absolutely. It's no more difficult than the husband's call to love his bride the way Jesus loves the church. But what I, the larger point is this. Our roles in marriage are for the purpose of acting out gospel love before each other. And when we, without consideration, immediately buck against that word and the role that we think it implies, you, you have to remember, you, actually what your marriage is, is you're cast in a play. That's what marriage is. That you're acting out so that the world and your family and your own heart can see the gospel actually dramatized within your marriage. Every marriage is a drama. That's what it is. It's art. And what good art does is it tells the truth and it gives us a picture of mutual delight and deference. And what bad art does is bad art lies. And in bad marriages, 
we get to see the horrors of what willfulness and this is about me asserting my rights over against you, what that does to one another, it destroys. So you have to see that your role is about something more than you. The gospel love of God, that a holy creator who made this amazing world, that we've broken by our selfishness and our sin, he forgives us by grace at the expense of the life of his own son so that we can live and be reconciled to him Sealed for the resurrection. That news is so good. It's so good that we need something more, something more than simply stating those words in this context right now. Right? I just told the story of God's story of redemption is grace. But we need something more to get those words to seek deeply into our hearts and really change us. So God has actually given us means by which understanding of His grace can work itself a little bit deeper down into our hearts. Marriage is supposed to be this place where two sinners say, I am devotedly yours no matter what I find in you. And you do that in marriage so that we can experience just a reflection of gospel love and get it just a little bit more. And marriage is not just for the married. Our marriage is for y'all. Our marriages are dramas for one another to see the gospel. So, future husbands and future wives in this room, your role is about preaching the gospel of God's love. It is not about gender politics at all. Paul is saying the purpose of marriage is to find someone with whom you will pursue Jesus and someone to whom you are committed to helping them be transformed by Jesus. The purpose of marriage is your partner's holiness, becoming their best selves in Christ. That's the purpose of marriage. And so that means the question is not, can they make me happy? The answer to that question is no. Can they make you happy for a little while? Yes. Actually, this is not even in my notes. I'm going off script right here. Actually, For 12 to 18 months, they can increase the dopamine levels in your brain. It's functionally the same thing cocaine does to your brain. But that can only last 12 to 18 months. Actually, neurologists, and I read all the studies on this, actually, believe it or not, um, talk about how we've got to have a better definition of love than just dopamine being released in our brains. Right? They can't make you happy. That's not the question. The question is this. Can I imagine going on a lifelong journey with this person and give my life to helping them find themselves more and more in God's love and being transformed into their best selves? That's the question. And it's a radically different question than can they make me happy? You can actually answer this question positively. You can't answer the question can they make me happy positively. You can lie to yourself and say yes. But... Is this someone I can imagine going on a lifelong journey towards Jesus with? Yeah. You got a shot. And this doesn't do... Here's what you're afraid of. This doesn't do away with all the elements of marriage, of romance, of sex, of children, of commitment, of friendship. What it does is it gives greater meaning to all of these elements in marriage. Even these things are actually imbued with greater purpose. Sex was not supposed to be a way that you use someone else for pleasure. That's how we use it. But rather, the first command God gives in Scripture is actually have lots of sex. That's the first thing He says to humanity. Sex, read Genesis. <laughs> it's intended to be a way that actually you use your body to give someone pleasure. It's the physical act of actually giving pleasure to them in the place of their most 
physical, sensitive, and vulnerable self. It's the way you, you're actually saying you're naked and not only do I accept you, I move to you and I please you and I'll never leave you. The Song of Solomon, a book in the Old Testament, is a scandalous celebration of actually how orgasmic, self-giving, other-serving sex preaches the delight of God's love to us. Friendship is not a way that you use someone to solve your issue of loneliness. It's a way that you actually give someone a companion on their life's journey. Children weren't a way for you to find identity, but actually gives you a purpose, gives you, or give you purpose, but they're there so that you can push them toward Christ and Christ-likeness and maturity. We wanted marriage to give us happiness, and that's actually why we're afraid of it and why we hate it. But God gave us marriage to give us meaning. This is the way one professor at Duke, an ethics professor, said, Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there's someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we can find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry, we just think that we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, give it a while, he or she will change. The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. You will never have meaning or joy if your job and your romance and your marriage and your friendship and your children and even your religion are always about you custom-building a life that suits your appetites. That we take that posture that means you're a taker, and that your vision of the human experience has never transcended anything more than your own appetites. Atlantic Monthly did several articles on happiness and meaning uh, in 2013, and here's a quote about research they, they cited. Happiness without meaning characterizes a relatively shallow, self-absorbed, and even selfish life in which things go well, needs and desires are easily satisfied, and difficult or taxing entanglements are avoided. Happy people get a lot of joy from receiving benefits from others, while people who lead meaningful lives get their joy from giving to others. And meaning is not only transcending the self, but also about transcending the present moment, which is perhaps the most important finding in our study. While happiness is an emotion felt in the here and now, it ultimately fades, just as all emotions do. But meaning, on the other hand, is enduring. It connects the past to the present to the future. Thinking beyond the present moment into the past or the future was a sign of relatively meaningful, but not always happy life. The researchers wrote, happiness is not generally found in contemplating the past or future. That is, people who thought more about the present were happier, but people who spent more time thinking about the future or about past struggles and sufferings felt more meaning in their lives. Life is not about exploring independence. Life is about finding something worthy of ending your independence for. When you discover something outside of you worthy of giving your life to, this leads to deeper lasting joy and actually, it actually will end up even giving purpose to suffering. 
And marriage is saved when we cease to be takers in our marriage, trying to get happiness from our spouse, and instead embrace the biblical vision of marriage and become givers that are seeking the healing and the delight and the holiness of the other. Because this is what's going to happen. If you get married because you think they can make you happy, at some point you will wake up next to a monster. And here's the other thing. When you wake up next to that monster, they're going to think you're the monster and feel equally convicted that you're the monster. But here's the thing. In God's design for marriage, in those moments, the all of a sudden monster realization moments of marriage, we normally think, if, if marriage is about happiness, we think this is the moment where the marriage falls apart. These are the moments that threaten the marriage because that's when we realize, wow, they can't make me happy. But if instead you begin to see and embrace God's design for marriage, the monster moments are actually the place where your heart is broken and restored and you begin to melt because in a little moment of life, in an imperfect way, from your spouse, you receive forgiveness. You receive, I'm committed to working with you on thisness. You receive, I'll never leave you you receive because I love you and you begin to not just understand but you actually have now a real world lived experience a foretaste of Jesus' love for you marriage is for your happiness when you finally get displeased with the person you're married to your marriage implodes if marriage is about getting a foretaste of God's love then in the monster moments of your marriage all of a sudden you understand Jesus more richly Marriage. What is it for? What is it? It's for us going on a journey with a best friend towards Jesus. What is it? God designed marriage to be a covenant. A lifelong, complete life binding of yourself to another. When marriage is described as the two shall become one flesh, it's not merely referring to physical oneness. It's whole life oneness. Uh, the way that RUF campus minister at Cal described it is he said, it's unrivaled companionship based on unwavering commitment. Unrivaled companionship based on unwavering commitment. What is unrivaled companionship? This is why the writer of Genesis says, I didn't read these, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He's saying your most significant relationships in this life, this one takes precedence. Among all the human relationships, there is no rival. Marriage is saying to your spouse, you above anyone else, above my parents, you above my, the rest of my family, you above my work, you above my friends, you above my hobbies, you above our children, you above the cute person I might meet two years from now, you above my ex. It's unrivaled companionship. There is no rival based on unwavering commitment. The purpose of marriage is that we actually can minister something of God's love to one another. And the ache of our soul is to hear someone say, you, I choose you no matter what. Jesus has said to us, I choose you even at the cost of my own life. In our marriages, we're actually preaching the love of Jesus to each other in the micro moments of 
I choose you over a night out with my friends. I choose you. I choose you even when you're a monster. I choose you when this is far more difficult than I thought it could be. I choose you when the spark isn't there. Do you know that the spark was not always there in Jesus' love for the church? We have biblical documentation of the fact that he is not always fired up about loving us, but he doesn't stop loving us. I choose you when we discover you haven't changed or I haven't changed. I choose you when, you, when things get worse. And here's the thing, and I choose you today, and I speak on behalf of 30-year-old me and 40-year-old me and 50-year-old me and 6-year-old me and 7-year-old me. We got together and decided we choose you. Contracts protect the interest of both parties involved from each other. I'm in as long as it doesn't become too difficult for me. And so in a contract, you're always willing to actually sacrifice the relationship to save yourself. That's selfish love. That's destined for divorce or empty marriage. Covenants don't protect the individuals. They protect the relationship. We will work on this relationship no matter what till death separates us. I choose you even over me. Covenants sacrifice the individual for the sake of the relationship. That's what covenant means. And this is the love, because this is the love with which Jesus loved us. And marriage is intended to be this place where we love each other in a way so that we can know Jesus' love in a place where we actually experience how that kind of love can transform us. A friend of mine told me a story about when we all have these nights, right, where all of our insecurities and all of our fears just come home to roost in our minds and our hearts and we can't dislodge them, right? All your doubts, all your fears, all your insecurity, all your guilt. And he couldn't sleep, and his wife rolled over in the middle of the night, and she said, you are my favorite person in the world, and I will never leave you. And you know what that did? It changed him. It brought rest to him. It strengthened him to be the right sort of person, to labor on in the hard things, You know what doesn't change us? Trying really hard to be a different person. You know what does? Being loved covenantally. Here's the thing about marriage. Marriage is both harder than you think and better than you think. And God's purpose in it is that we experience a glimmer of the contours of His greater love. In marriage, you experience intimacy. That means knowing each other's secrets, good and bad, personal and psychological and physical secrets and you aren't rejected but rather delighted in. In marriage you actually bind yourself to them even if it comes at cost to you. In marriage you deal kindly and graciously and forgivingly because even if they don't deserve it, God's intention is that you get a foretaste of this is of the fact that this is how he loves you. Brief applications and we'll finish. Really short. First of all, that means we have to change the way we think about looking for a spouse. I said this last week, marriage is friendship garnished with romance. It's not romance garnished with friendship. And this is what this means. You can't walk into a room or your place where you meet people that you expect to like and dismiss 97% of the people because you walked in the door and at first glance they didn't fit our ridiculously foolish notions about hotness and physical attraction. We all got to deal with two incontrovertible facts. Everyone gets unhot eventually. I'm sorry, I don't know if you know that yet. 
and no disrespect to all of our grandparents, all of us in this room will get unhot eventually. Second incontrovertible fact, there are 60, 70, and 80-year-olds who are unhot that have deep, rich marriages. Don't look for hotties. Look for a friend. I don't give a lot of practical advice. There you go. (laughs) Don't look for hotties. Look for a friend. What did I learn earlier tonight? I stand by it. (laughs) Secondly, what do we do with our frustrated singleness? Right? If you haven't found anyone, not close to finding anyone, haven't even had a chance, here's the thing. You gotta you gotta repent of thinking marriage is gonna save you. It won't, and that's an unfair burden that you've got to re- and you've got to wrestle with the fact that you're embittered about your singleness because you actually believe married people are saved. They're not. So don't waste your singleness by alternately hoping in a mirage or being embittered by a mirage. For two reasons. First of all. What you're hoping in or hoping for or think people have is a mirage. And secondly, you're also now wasting the fact that your time and energy and heart are valuable and useful now. Don't waste your singleness. Look for spouses a different way. Don't waste your singleness. And then secondly, in some ways, an additional question, we kind of talked about some last night, that you've got to ask in your relationships is you've got to ask, do they view marriage the same way? Are they someone you can imagine devoting your life to? Not asking to make you happy, but devoting your life to. Are they someone who thinks marriage is about mutual devotion and service for the purpose of building each other up in Christ? Because here's the thing. No one's compatible. The question is not, are we compatible or not? The question is, what do you, how do you intend to deal with incompatibility? That's the question. Do you intend to do with it, deal with it through covenant promises and through grace? Or deal with it the way we deal with our iPhones, which is, well, after a while, there's just a better version. Right? Lastly, last point of application. Here's the thing. You've got to look past marriage. You have to look through and look past your own. You have to look through and look past my marriage and all the others, even in the bad marriages, they actually teach us about Jesus by way of negative example, right? We should grieve when a husband rejects his wife because he no longer finds her attractive, and you should feel the wrongness of that. And no, this is the opposite of Jesus' love for his bride, the church, that he will always love you, and even our ugliness can't deter him. And and I'll close with kind of a friend of mine, Brian Habig, another uh, pastor in South Carolina, talks about Revelation 19 and Revelation 21. If you go and read about the new heavens and new earth, it's amazing how much it talks about marriage. And uh, John says this, talking about the new heavens and new earth, write this, blessed are those, this is how he describes heaven, who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation 21, I saw the holy city of the new Jerusalem, that is the people of God, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is an image that's all throughout Scripture in the prophets in the Old Testament in Isaiah 25. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, rich food, full marrow, full of marrow, and aged wine well refined. 
one of the constant images of what it will be like to come into God's presence is it will be like a marriage feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb, that it will be something like Jesus' love for the church is like a husband's love for a bride. When we come into God's presence in the new heavens and new earth, God will celebrate you. I love the verse from Isaiah about describing the feast. A feast of rich food, well-aged wine, rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. There's going to be a lot of carbs at this feast. There's going to be a lot of glutens at this feast. There's going to be a lot of wine at this feast. It is going to be rich food. Because our bodies are going to work right. Don't get upset if you're gluten-free. It's actually because our bodies are fixed, but that's another theological point. It is going to be... Heaven commences with a feast in which God celebrates His love for you. In the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like, and He tells the story of a knucklehead son who spends his family's fortune, who rejects and cuts himself off from his father, and he returns expecting a lower status in the house and expecting to have to pay the father back, and the father doesn't even care about his little speech or his little plan because he loves him. And he throws a party, despite the fact all of us in this room, if we really understand that parable, we would think it's wholly inappropriate to not at least chastise or hold off or temper the excitement when he's reunited reunited with his son. He doesn't even preach at him. He just says, come to the party. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, the feast that God commences when you join him, they're going to be porn addicts. They're going to be people who hate their parents. They're going to be cheaters. They're going to be anxious people addicted to busyness. They're going to be hurtful people. They're going to be bitter people. They're going to be jealous people. They're going to be racists. They're going to be gossips. They're going to be sluts. They will be there, and they will be there because God has washed us in the blood of His Son, Jesus. And we will not wear our accomplishments, and we will not wear our failures like we do in this world. We will be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And there's not going to be a lecture, and there's not going to be a review, and there's not going to be a pause, and He's not merely going to tolerate you. And He's not going to say you could have done better. He will smile because He loves you. Our marriages are about preaching that moment to our best friend through our physical life together, our emotional life together, our social life together, our work life together, our psychological life together over and over and over again because it's so good we need to have it preached to us all kinds of different ways because it's unbelievable. Let's pray.